Remain standing for the sermon text from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 18 and go to verse 25. And give your ear to God's word this morning. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the eager expectation of creation waits expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its bondage to corruption and be brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together in birth pains right up to the present. And not only creation, but even we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we ourselves also groan within ourselves, waiting expectantly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait expectantly for it with patience. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please bless the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of the words that you, your spirit, inspired. May the spirit who lives in us, the spirit who gave us these words, help us to understand, to believe, and to treasure up in our hearts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. And may you, through your spirit, for the sake of Christ, show us today how to live it out, how to live out the gospel that has saved us. And we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The title of the next few messages will be Groaning for Glory. And in today's sermon, we're simply going to explore what groaning and glory are. Now, if you're the kind of person who follows the sermon handout, then I'll warn you that we won't even get to the outline until we're halfway through the sermon. So just sit back and listen, and I'll let you know when we get to the points in the handout. This is going to be a little bit of a different sermon. We're really only going to cover one verse today. A little bit of an introductory sermon to the next uh, couple, two or three sermons in this part of Romans 8. So Lord willing, we'll get through most of the introduction today and then we'll come back next week at least to consider <clears throat> excuse me, the various ways in which God's creation and God's children groan for glory. Today we'll focus a little bit more on glory than groaning. Because we know from experience what it means to groan. We're more familiar with the groaning part. Our bodies groan, our souls groan, our spirits groan, our hearts groan, our minds groan, our relationships groan, 
our governments groan, our gardens groan, our animals groan, and all of creation groans because we are living still under the curse of sin. So we know groaning, but we're less familiar with glory. And we're familiar with the term and we may even use it, but we need to understand what it means biblically. We don't have any experience with it. We don't have any experience with the glory that awaits us, the glory that Paul's talking about here, the glory that God's creation and God's children groan for even now. In verse 17 and then again in verse 18, Paul puts suffering or groaning, as I'll often call it in this sermon, together with glory. At the end of verse 17, he says, this is what we talked about last time, at the end of, we got to the end of verse 17, he says that if we're willing to suffer with Christ faithfully in this life, then we can look forward to being glorified with him in the life to come. Then verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time, and ultimately he's talking about all kinds of suffering, not just being persecuted for the gospel, although that was often what uh, Paul is talking about when he's talking about his own sufferings. But as we'll see in Romans 8, he's talking about the suffering that just comes with being a creature in the fallen creation, right? And so at, at, at the end of verse 17, he says that if we're willing to suffer with Christ Faithfully in this life, we'll look forward to being glorified in the life to come. And then 18, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not, this is one of the key phrases, are not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in us. And so what is this glory that creation and Christians are eagerly anticipating, eagerly expecting? There's a verb in the paragraph that I read, 18 to 25, that it uses three times. That means to expect eagerly or to expect expectantly. It's, it's a, and, and what, but what's it mean? What, what is this glory that is right on the verge of being revealed in us that we are expecting, that we're looking forward to expectantly? Uh, and the idea in that word is like we're craning, we're on our tiptoes, craning our neck, expecting it. It's just right over the horizon. But what, what is this glory that's right on the horizon? Well, definitions of glory become very boring and inadequate very quickly. Uh, I like what one commentator did in his exposition of verse 18. Instead of giving the academic definitions of glory, which really just defeats the purpose, and I'm not going to do that either. He, instead of doing that, he runs to C.S. Lewis, and, which is always usually a very good thing to do, and he quotes uh, from his essay, Weight of Glory. Uh, this essay was, or you probably heard of it, there's a book named after it, because it's the first essay in one of the books, the collection of his essays, uh, but it was originally a sermon Weight of glory was originally a sermon. At the beginning of it, Lewis refers to our universal longing for something that we can't really express. He calls it a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. In other words, it's a craving for something 
that nothing in this world, no experience, nothing in this world can fulfill. No relationship, no living condition, no vacation, no job, no position, no status, no power, no privilege, no prestige, no accomplishment, no set of circumstances can scratch the underlying itch that every human is born with. Lewis said that this longing is a longing for glory. And at its root, it's a desire to be approved by God. We want more than anything to experience, to receive the approval of our Creator, of our Father. And the biblical word that expresses that desire for the thing that we desire is Glory. I think Lewis is very much onto something here. We want glory, which is to say we want divine approval. We, we want God to look at us and smile, and we want him to smile because he believes there's something worth smiling at. That's what we long for. We, we see, and we see a reflection of this in creation. Children, more than anything, want approval from their parents. And this is not a result of the fall. I mean, it gets twisted up by, the, by our sin. But this is how God wired us. We long for approval from our divine and human parents. It's only right that creatures wish for the approval of their creator. It, it, it's, it's how it would have been even without sin. And it's how it will be one day without sin, when there is no sin. The problem, of course, is that our behavior makes it impossible for God to approve of us unless he intervenes to make us righteous through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Only then can we be acceptable before God. Only then are we righteous before him, and, and then only then can we go on to begin to please him in our own actions. And then one day he will perfect what he has begun and we will be perfectly righteous before him in, fact, in, in our actions, not just because we are in Christ. And one day we'll appear before God's judgment seat. And what will happen then? That's the question Lewis asks. And he said that there are two things. One of two things will happen. On the one hand, Lewis says, quote, we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day, Lewis says, on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities, end quote. But the glory that Lewis has in mind, and, and especially the glory that Paul has in mind in verses 17 and 18, it goes beyond acceptance and, and approval and individual worth and, and those kind of questions. It also has to do with splendor and loveliness. We long for brightness and beauty. More specifically, we long to be bright and to be beautiful. Can anyone here deny what I'm saying? 
Does anyone here not long to be radiant, to shine like a star, and to be full of beauty and glory on the inside and on the outside? You don't just want to see what is beautiful. You also want to participate in it, to be a part of it. You don't want to stand on the outside looking in on it. You want to be in on it. You want to be a part of it. You crave to be a significant part of the glorious beauty that is to come. You want to be on the inside rather than the outside. You don't just want to look at it. You want to be it. And Lewis expresses this wonderfully in Weight of Glory. And I'm going to read a long quote, three paragraphs from that sermon. Quote, we are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. I think I begin to see what it means. In one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of. But, Lewis says, the poets and mythologies know all about it. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They, they talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't. Or, not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously... If we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they, we, will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. End quote. No one can put it quite like Lewis. Everyone in this sanctuary has something in common, all of us. We all crave that glory. We long for the glory that humanity once enjoyed, at least in part, more than anything else, whether we realize it or not, we desire the glory that God's children, along with the rest of creation, will enjoy again one day. None of us in this room, in this sanctuary, has ever experienced it. Adam and Eve are the only humans 
who saw the beginnings of this glory while it was still residing on earth and in mankind. Man was made in the image of God, and at the beginning he was perfect and sinless and glorious, and he existed in a glorious garden where heaven and earth overlapped, where talking heavenly beings interacted with earthly creatures. But, what, but what's man's condition now, today? Mankind is a disgrace compared to his former glory. We've fallen from great heights. The glory, we could say, has departed. There's no, perhaps no name for humanity more fitting than the name that Phineas' wife gave her son, her newborn son in 1 Samuel 4 when she heard the news that the Ark of the Covenant, uh, where God's, where, which represented God's presence and glory, had been captured by the Philistine army. Do you remember what she named her son right after that tragic moment? Ichabod. Where is the glory? The glory has departed. In Genesis 3, it departed from our bodies, it departed from our souls, it departed our, from our minds and hearts and relationships and gardens and animals. It departed from creation. Adam and Eve were the glorious crown of creation. They outshined all the other creatures in every way. They were created last as the crown, so to speak, of creation. But when they disobeyed God's commandment, they invited disease, decay, and death into their bodies. God told them, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's because of the fall, because of their sin. Mankind also committed suicide of soul on that day in the garden. We were created as the most beautiful and most noble of soul, but our, our transcendent beauty and our unfathomable nobility was tarnished deeply by our sin, by our rebellion, which invited spiritual disease, decay, and death into our souls. We enjoyed glory once. We enjoyed perfect communion with God once. We participated in the glorious beauty of God's creation once, which is why we still crave it so much. As descendants of Adam and Eve, we crave the glory that they tasted, that they enjoyed briefly, that we enjoyed briefly. But it's gone. It's not only gone, it's, it's out of reach. Our situation is miserable. And yet, praise be to God that the story doesn't end there with us being out of reach of that glory, unable to get to it on our own. When we turn to the book that we study together every Sunday morning, we find a marvelous truth, even in our passage today. We find that the end of our redemption story, the end of our salvation in Christ, is not merely deliverance from sin and death, and that's not a mere thing, that might not be the best way to put it, but not only deliverance from sin and death, so much more awaits us. Our end is glorification. When God reveals his glory, the apostle says, in us. Do you see what he says there at the end of verse 18? 
it will be revealed not to us. The Greek is actually a little awkward, and some translations try to smooth it out with to us, but it's, it's into us, in us. It will be revealed in our resurrected bodies and in our perfected souls and in our restored relationships with one another and with all of creation. What we have to look forward to, what we ought to be looking forward to, what we are called to be looking forward to, what we are called to have our eyes on, the hope that we are called to have our eyes on more than we have our eyes on this world, what we have to look forward to is infinitely more than we can imagine or comprehend. God's going to restore to us all that our first parents lost and then a whole lot more. That's the interesting part of this. What do I mean when I say, and a whole lot more, you know, and then some? I mean that the glory that awaits us is even greater than the, to us, unimaginable glory that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden before they sinned. It was before they sinned, but it was also before they were glorified. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains this better than most. He says, Adam was a perfect man, but his perfection fell short of glorification. There there was room for development, and it's clear that glorification was the ultimate, the goal that was intended for man. As man, he was perfect. There was no blemish in him. There was no sin in him. There was no fault in him. He was in a state of innocence, but innocence falls short of glorification. But but, But what is held before us, Jones says, and offered to us in Christ and promised to us in him, is nothing less than glorification. The thing which man, if he had continued to keep God's commandments, would have arrived at and which would have been given to him as a reward for his obedience is the thing that is now freely given to us in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. End quote. So all of this sort of by way of introduction, brings us back to our text, which speaks of the relationship between our our present sufferings and our future glory. And the first thing we see when we back up to verse 17 is that groaning and glory are inseparable. They go together. They're, They're a package deal. The kind of groaning that Paul's talking about in Romans 8 is the kind that always ends in glory. And so, strictly speaking, the, the, the particular groaning that he has in mind as you read the whole chapter is, is not experienced by unbelievers. It's experienced by all of creation and God's children. And, and so, they go together. It, we can say it this way, the kind of groaning that Paul's talking about in Romans 8 is the kind that always ends in glory. And the glory he's talking about is always preceded by groaning or a certain kind of faithful suffering. Groaning and glory go together indissolubly. They, they went together in the experience of the Savior and they go together in the experience of those he has saved. It's only after we've suffered in Christ, Paul says in verse 17, that we will enter into his glory. And so we could say no groaning no glory. Second, we see in verse 18 that groaning and glory are distinct. So they're inseparable, but they're distinct. 
they characterize two distinct ages, periods, eons. They're joined together, but they are two distinct things that belong to two distinct eons. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10. And after you, he says very, something very similar to Paul here. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that's going to happen when the eternal glory that he speaks of there comes to earth. It's after you've suffered a little while. He's talking about this life. On the one hand, the groanings and the glory are married. They they can't be divorced. They're sewn together. They, They can't be torn in two. They're welded together. They can't be broken apart. But on the other hand, the groaning belongs to this age and the glory belongs to the age to come. And there's no bleeding over. The groaning doesn't bleed over into the age to come. You don't have to worry about any of your suffering here following you. But it's also true that the glory doesn't bleed over into this life. Your glorification is is waiting for you at the end. Beware of any philosophy, any so-called gospel, any movement, any theological celebrity, any preacher, any podcast, any political theology, any eschatology that tries to tell you that God's people can and will experience Glory in this world, biblical glory in this world. There are many people willing to tell you that, many leaders and movements who get their following by telling people that they can have in this world what God says he will only give us in the world to come. And oh, how susceptible we are to that gospel, that false gospel how susceptible we are to their message, how, how ready we are to become enchanted with the earthly comforts and worldly pleasures and short-term victories. Here, again, is how C.S. Lewis put it in Weight of Glory. You and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found, the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. And he's writing this, saying this in 1941. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. And, And what he calls modern philosophies have infiltrated Christians and churches and pulpits. And I don't just mean those Christians out there those congregations out there, those pulpits out there, you and I are under the spell that Lewis is talking about. We need to be freed. We need a spell to become dis... from this evil enchantment. We are susceptible to the anti-gospel idea that the goodness and beauty and triumph and glory that we long for can be found in this life, in this age, in this world, in this eon. But the promise that Jesus makes in John 16, 33 will be true until the day he returns. 
I have told you these things, Jesus says in John 16, 33, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world, you can have peace in him. And in him is the only place where you can find peace. Because your life in this world will be plagued with trouble. This is true for the person with the worst circumstances. And it's true for the person whose life appears to be enchanted. In this world, you will groan. And this is a truth that will be true as long as this world, this age, persists. But take heart, glory awaits you because Jesus has overcome the world. There's a glory coming that's so blindingly powerful that when it overtakes us, when it descends upon us, it's, it'll gulf the whole world, Paul says, all of creation, and it'll glorify the creation along with believers. Not just believers. It's not just going to come down on us. It's going to come down on the whole of the creation. And this naturally leads to the third point. The groaning in this age and the glory in the age to come are unalike, Paul says. They cannot be compared with each other, he says in verse 18. They're inseparable, but they're not comparable. They must only be contrasted, not compared. The word glory signifies substance, weightiness, the, it, the weight of glory, right? It, you, you need to imagine a set of scales. On, on one side, there's an infinitely weighty chunk of metal, okay? On the other side, there's a hummingbird feather. The future glory laid up for us is so weighty, so substantial, that our present sufferings are like that hummingbird feather compared to an infinitely weighty substance on the other side. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4. After, after writing poignantly of, of the persecutions and the trials, the sufferings he endured, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer man, our outer self or body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is significant because a lot of the sufferings, the persecutions that Paul is dealing with um, were, in fact, on his body. But he, what he's saying here is that there's a sense in which they don't penetrate to the soul and cause the damage to the soul that they do to the body. Our because his inner self, he says, is still being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all, comp uh, all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. James Boyce points out that our groaning and our glory are different in three important areas. 
according to this one verse. And I didn't include this in the outline, but I'll give you them now, and then I'll repeat them as we, as we go through them. I think this is a really helpful way of thinking about it. Our groaning and our glory are alike in three ways. They're are unalike, I should say, in three ways. They're unalike in their intensity, they're unalike in their location, and they're unalike in their duration. First, in their intensity. Suffering can be heavy. Paul's not denying that, that there's an intensity to our suffering, to his and ours. It, it hurts deeply. Otherwise, it would not classify as suffering, right? In fact, sometimes it can hurt so intensely, so profoundly, that we don't, we don't feel like we can bear it. We don't know how we could bear it. All we can do is, is to scream or to cry out in pain or confusion. But, Paul says... The intensity of our groaning, as, in, as intense as it really is, is still not worthy of being compared with, the fu- with our future glory. It, it's, it's so different, it's so unlike it, that they're not even in the same universe so that you can compare them with each other. And, and Paul's not speaking from ignorance. He would know, Right? If anyone would know, and if anyone's qualified to speak to these two things that are unlike, it's him. He experienced the most intense kind of suffering, and he caught a glimpse of the glory to come. Remember that? So so judging from his descriptions in 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul suffered far more than most humans have. But he was also caught up in the third heaven where he saw heaven's glory. And according to him, the intensity even of his own suffering was not worthy to be compared with the grandeur of the glory that was waiting for him, that he longed for, that he couldn't wait to get to. In a couple places, he even says, it's better to be there. I'd rather be there than here. It's so great. So they're unalike in intensity. Second, groaning and glory are unalike in their location, that's an awkward way to put it, but it's hard to think of a better way to put it because Paul's language is a little bit awkward intentionally here when he says, in us. And so did you, So again, I'm going to point you to the end of the verse where he says that the glory of God is going to be revealed in us, into us. It's going to be bestowed upon us in such a way that it's not just Stay, it doesn't just stay on the outside, or it's not just a, a veneer. It's, it's going to come into us. And what Paul means here is that the glory isn't just going to be all around us. It's going to enter us and in such a way. It's going to transform us. We're going to be transformed by it from the inside out in soul and body. And so you see, there's a sense in which our suffering, though we feel it deeply only affects us outwardly. It only, we could say it because it affects us temporarily. Our, Our afflictions can't penetrate into our souls the way glory one day will. It can't, it's not in us in the same way glory one day will be in us, will be revealed in us. Our momentary and light afflictions in this life have a way of wearing down our outer man, but they can't stop our inner man, our inner person, our inner self 
from being renewed day by day. And one of the keys there is that they are momentary, which means they are passing, they are temporary. Whereas our glory, as we'll see in a minute, is eternal. So the afflictions that reside in your body for a short time are building up for you a weight of glory that will reside in your body and soul forever. I'm going to say that again. I think that's maybe the, a way to capture all of this. The, the afflictions that reside in your body for a short time are building up for you, Paul says, a weight of glory, preparing for you a weight of glory, storing up for you a weight of glory that will reside, a glory that will reside in your body and your soul forever. And so the third way groaning and glory are alike is in their duration. Suffering for believers is temporary because it ends when this life ends, when this world ends. But the glory about to be revealed in you will be eternal and unchanging, permanent. The groaning is momentary. The glory is everlasting. There's no comparison between the unending glory of heaven and the momentary groanings of this present time. And I hope you don't hear what I'm not saying and certainly what Paul is not saying. The, the point here is not that your suffering is insignificant. That it's not worth thinking about or talking about in, in any way. Paul isn't downplaying the intensity of the pain that we experience in this world. He's not dismissing the deep sadness and mental anguish and emotional agony and physical pain that you have experienced during your time on this earth and that you will continue to experience during your time on this earth. In fact, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's dignifying your suffering. He believes your groaning and afflictions have eternal significance. For they are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. This makes it all the more meaningful when Paul assures us that there is no comparison between the eternal glory of Christ and the sufferings of your short life in this world. It makes it all the more meaningful when we realize, when he says that these momentary and light afflictions that can't be compared to the glory, well, they can't be compared, and yet they are part of what is building up that future glory. God is using them to build up that future glory for you. And so they are very meaningful. They are very significant. And they are, they are intense. But they're not as intense as the glory. That's the good news. It's, it's not really a comment so much on our suffering as it is on the glory. However painful your groanings may be while you're going through them, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in you. And so he's not downplaying your suffering. He's expressing how wonderful and glorious your future is. Do you believe Paul's words here? Do you think they're true? Have you considered, that's the word Paul uses, uh, he, he considers, have you considered, as Paul had, that your glory to come is 
worth far more than anything you might have to endure in this life, however distressful, however painful. There's no reality in your life more real than the glory about to be revealed in you. That's real reality. In a sense, this reality is is less real. Nothing more substantial than that reality, the glory about to be revealed in you. And so hold on tenaciously to that great reality. Keep your eyes on that future glory. As Paul says later in this paragraph that I read, down in verses 24 and 25, that's where your hope lies. So keep your eyes on your hope. Keep your eyes on the future glory. Remember every morning when you wake up and every evening when you go to bed and every moment in between that you don't actually belong to this present age. You belong more fundamentally to a different age. Your citizenship, Paul says in another place, is in heaven. And this world is passing and temporary. And so don't fix your sights on the things that are passing, the things that will be gone soon. Fix your eyes on those things that are eternal. The world to come is the real and lasting one. It's the eternal one. It's the permanent world. It's your true country, your true homeland, as the book of Hebrews says. It's the city you want to live in. It's the city you long for. It's what you're groaning for. Recognize that. It's what you're groaning for. And so if you look for it anywhere else, you're, just, you're going to groan with no hope, with no hope of satisfaction. You don't long for anything that, be, that can be satisfied in this life. You don't long for anything that can be satisfied in this world. You groan because you crave the glory of the future world that will endure forever. So for the rest of your life in this world, fix your eyes and fix your heart on the glory that can and will satisfy. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to turn our hearts to you and to stop trying to be satisfied by the streams that are dry. We thank you, God, for the glory that awaits us, the glory that you've promised, the glory that is in Christ Jesus forever. Help us to live in the light of that hope and give us the faith to know in every moment that it is worth the sufferings and the groanings that you put in our path in this life. And so help us even today, help us this week to live by the kind of faith that Paul, that you are calling us to. We ask for it and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.